Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers a period from September 5th to October 3rd. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10. On September 19th, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee met to discuss how to get more capital to smaller venture capitalists and emerging fund managers. Eric Gerding, director of the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance, highlighted what the commission is doing to help small businesses, including scaling back disclosure requirements and encouraging comments from small businesses on proposed regulations. Director Gerding said he and other SEC staff members are also traveling to more remote parts of the country to talk to small business owners. SEC Commissioner Hester M. Peirce told the committee asset management should be a dynamic, low barriers to entry industry in which entrants compete for investor assets alongside their more established peers. Regulation, however, is inhibiting competition and fostering consolidation. Commissioner Peirce also said the rule the SEC passed last month for private fund advisors will make this situation worse by creating insurmountable barriers for aspiring managers. Kwesi Kwa, a partner with Fairview Capital Partners, a small investment manager, told the committee that smaller firms offer investors more diverse opportunities, are more nimble, and allow investors to get in on the ground floor of the best funds. Number nine, on September 21st, the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility submitted an amicus brief in support of the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission in the case of the National Center for Public Policy Research versus SEC in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. This case, in which the National Association of Manufacturers is also participating, challenges the SEC's authority to issue no-action decisions on shareholder proposals. The plaintiffs argue that the commission cannot compel corporate speech in violation of the First Amendment and federal securities laws by forcing companies to include proposals on their proxy ballots. In its amicus brief, the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility outlines the benefits that the shareholder proposal process provides to shareholders and companies. Specifically, the brief explains that shareholder proposals provide the following three benefits. One, they lead to constructive dialogue between shareholders and management. Two, they often result in shareholders withdrawing their proposals based on productive dialogue. And three, They serve as early warning systems, alerting companies to issues that could potentially lead to financial, legal, and reputational risks. The Interface Center on Corporate Responsibility Brief also argues that this case is not the way to seek changes to Rule 14AA outside of the Administrative Procedures Act, nor are there grounds to challenge Rule 14AA on constitutional principles. The Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility amicus brief also concludes that Rule 14A8 is squarely within the SEC's statutory mandate to require adequate disclosure relating to the proxy process. Number eight, on September 21st, a federal district court judge in Texas upheld 
the U.S. Department of Labor's 2022 ESG rule. Texas Federal District Judge Matthew Kixmarek, who was appointed by former President Donald J. Trump, rejected an argument made by 26 Republican state attorneys general that the 2022 Department of Labor rule conflicts with the Employee Retirement Income Security Act because current law requires fiduciaries to consider financial benefits above any non-financial and pecuniary benefits. Judge Kixmarek found that the Department of Labor has long asserted that ESG factors may have a direct relationship to a retirement plan's economic value. Indeed, he wrote in his opinion that since at least 2015, the Department of Labor has posited that ESG factors may have a direct relationship to the economic value of the plan's investment. And likewise, the 2020 Department of Labor rule stated that failing to consider ESG-related risk return factors could constitute a violation of the duty of prudence in some circumstances. The judge also noted that the plaintiffs concede that ESG factors can be considered for risk return purposes in appropriate circumstances. Number seven, on September 13th, the U.S. House Financial Services Committee held an oversight hearing at which Department of Treasury Assistant Secretary for Investment Security Paul Rosen testified. Assistant Secretary Rosen's testimony focused largely on two topics. One, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States' efforts to review certain foreign direct investments in the United States. And two, President Joe Biden's August 2023 executive order directing Treasury to implement a new program for the review of specified outbound investments. Committee Chairman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina expressed concern about Treasury's proposed outbound investment screening program, arguing that Congress has repeatedly dismissed this idea for good reason, and that if the administration is concerned about Chinese technology companies, it should want more Americans in control of them, not fewer. Chairman McHenry stressed, moreover, that the United States must use time-tested tools to get tough on China rather than novel concepts and urged the administration to double down on its commitment to free people and free markets. Although she described President Biden's executive order as a good first step, Ranking member Maxine Waters of California emphasized that more can be done Ranking member Maxine Waters of California emphasized that more can be done, noting that an outbound screening framework could also address U.S. companies' supply chain resiliency, how workers are treated overseas, and climate risks, all of which deeply affect the U.S. economy and security. Ranking member Waters also urged the administration to review investments by private equity and venture capital firms in Chinese-based companies because they may also pose ongoing threats. Assistant Secretary Rosen reported that pursuant to the President's August 2023 executive order and the related advance notice of proposed rulemaking, Treasury's Office of Investment Security will implement a new program administered separately from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. The new program would prohibit U.S. persons from undertaking certain transactions in countries of concern in the areas of semiconductors and microelectronics, quantum information technologies, and certain artificial intelligence systems. Number six, 
On September 12th, the U.S. Senate Banking Committee held a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission oversight hearing at which SEC Chair Gary Gensler testified on the commission's rulemaking agenda and enforcement priorities. Responding to concerns that the SEC's proposed climate risk disclosure rule could lead to burdensome reporting requirements for farmers and ranchers who do business with publicly traded companies, Chair Gensler said he has asked his staff to really take a close look at those comments and make sure that the SEC is only regulating the public companies and not somehow indirectly those private companies and to come up with solutions. Chair Gensler noted that the SEC has received a lot of comments on scope three emissions disclosures, which he said are currently not as well developed as scope one and two disclosures, and reported that the commission is looking at staff recommendations on how to deal with those comments. Observing that investors are already making decisions today based on climate risk disclosures of major U.S. companies, Chair Gensler said the SEC's role is to bring comparability and consistency to these disclosures to help investors compare information that companies are putting out. Chair Gensler also defended the SEC's recently finalized rules governing private fund advisors arguing that the new requirements will bring greater transparency regarding fees, performance, and side letters, and help promote competition and the efficiency of the market and, in turn, increase returns for retirees. Responding to concerns that Staff Accounting Bulletin 121's requirement that publicly traded companies hold digital assets in custody as an on-balance sheet liability, Chair Gensler responded that the reason the staff came to that conclusion is because companies cannot readily, easily segregate those crypto assets, which he said is different than for stocks or bonds in custody. Further, Chair Gensler suggested that the banking regulators are free to address how they treat capital however they wish, adding that it is up to the banking regulators to speak to how crypto assets are backed. Asked about the SEC's timeline for publishing a proposal on human capital disclosures, Chair Gensler said, The commission staff are examining issuer filings since the finalization of the 2020 rule modifying such disclosure requirements, and that the SEC wants to build upon that rule with targeted changes related to the cost of an issuer's workforce, as well as workforce turnover, retention, and trading. Responding to investor protection-related concerns regarding Chinese-based online broker-dealers operating in the United States, Chair Gensler stressed that regardless of a broker's location, They've got to participate in and play by our rules and highlighted the SEC's recent negotiations with Chinese authorities regarding the inspection of China-based auditors pursuant to the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. Number five, on September 27th, the U.S. House Financial Services Committee held an oversight hearing at which U.S. Securities Exchange Commission Chairman Gary Gensler testified. In connection with the hearing, Chair Gensler defended the commission's pace and number of rulemakings and length of comment periods against criticisms in a letter GOP members of the committee sent him ahead of the hearing. That September 26th letter accuses the SEC of not considering stakeholder feedback and failing to conduct thorough economic analysis when issuing rulemakings. The letter points to a 2022 Inspector General statement and a Department of Justice comment letter expressing concerns about shortened comment periods and the Commission's failure to assess the potential complications of interlocking rule proposals. Chair Gensler testified in the past two years, the SEC finalized 24 rulemakings and it reopened 18 of its rules for further public comment. 
Jerry Gensler noted that a recent news article said the finalized rule total is less than the number implemented by some of his predecessors in a comparable time frame. The SEC chair also said that the comment periods the SEC provided for proposed rulemakings averaged 70 days. He clarified, when comment periods close, we often continue to get additional comments through meetings and otherwise, which staff has considered as well. Chair Gensler said, the process of considering incorporating public feedback generally takes 12 to 24 months. Chair Gensler told the committee that we're focused on getting things right based upon the economics, the commission's legal authorities, and promoting the SEC's mission, not the clock. At the beginning of the hearing, Committee Chair Patrick McHenry of North Carolina threatened to subpoena Chair Gensler if he did not turn over records and information related to the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rules. Chair McHenry said he and other GOP members of the committee sent the SEC chair a letter in February requesting the information, and they have not received any non-public documents in response. Chair McHenry said, my patience is wearing thin. He added, I do not want to be the first chairman of this committee to issue a subpoena to the Securities Exchange Commission, and you should not want to be the first SEC chair to receive a congressional subpoena. Chair Gensler responded, saying he believes that the commission must vote on whether to turn over non-public documents to Congress. His testimony, Chair Gensler responded to criticism that the SEC is promoting an ESG agenda through its proposed climate risk disclosure rules. Chair Gensler explained that the SEC is merit neutral and focuses on the disclosures about, not the merits of, investments. SEC Chair also pointed out that 81% of Russell 1000 companies already make climate risk disclosures, and 57% of those companies disclose their scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions. Further, Chair Gensler said investors representing tens of trillions of dollars in assets already are making decisions relying on those disclosures. Chair Gensler was asked about the pending enactment of California's sweeping climate risk disclosure rules and how that would influence the SEC's proposed climate risk rules. Chair Gensler said the California state rules, which are expected to apply between 1,400 and 1,500 companies, could change the baseline for the SEC's economic analysis of its proposed rules. Chair Gensler said if these companies are already reporting to California, it would be, in essence, less costly for those companies to also report to the Securities Exchange Commission. Under the proposed California law, large companies that do business in California would have to start disclosing emissions from their direct operations and energy use by 2026 and emissions from companies' supply chains and other indirect sources in 2027. Number four, on September 26th, a bipartisan group of 32 members of Congress, led by Representatives Bill Foster of Illinois and Representative French Hill of Arkansas, sent a letter to U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. The letter expresses concern that the data utilized in the economic analyses of the commission's four December 2022 equity market proposals is incomplete and may prevent an accurate assessment of the quality of trade execution received by retail investors under the current equity market structure. Cautioning that reliance on insufficient data creates the risk that the commission's analysis does not capture the full impact of the proposed changes on retail price improvement the lawmakers urged the SEC to move forward with the disclosure of order execution information proposal and analyze the newly updated Rule 605 data before finalizing the other three market structure reforms that will benefit from the insights provided by the updated Rule 605 data. Number three, on September 21st, 
the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Investor Advisory Committee met to discuss the consequences of the disclosure of exempt private offerings under Regulation D and to consider a subcommittee recommendation regarding human capital management disclosure. Sarah Hanks, CEO of CrowdCheck, a compliance provider for early stage companies, noted that Regulation D, which provides exemptions from registration for companies when they offer and sell securities, was intended to protect smaller operating companies, especially startups. She said it's important for these firms to be able to raise money flexibly without statutory requirements such as lead time or material preparation that could be costly. Ms. Hanks warned that without this flexibility, creditors such as landlords could force companies that cannot quickly raise funds to shut down. Alexandra Thornton, Senior Director for Financial Regulation at the Center for American Progress, explained that as new exemptions like Regulation D were created, the government made it easier for companies to sell securities to an expanding pool of investors without providing material information. Ms. Thornton argued that disclosure is important for the prudent and efficient allocation of capital, as well as for fraud mitigation. Ms. Thornton argued that disclosure is important for the prudent and efficient allocation of capital, as well as for fraud mitigation. Ms. Thornton proposed requiring large private companies with high valuations, many employees, or large annual revenues to become public companies. Amanda Sen, director of the Alabama Securities Commission, noted that the current Regulation D market is very different from what was originally envisioned and noted that state regulators routinely come across disclosures that fail to provide material information about the value or risk associated with an investment. She proposed that the SEC require pre- and post-sale reports from Regulation D issuances. Ms. Sen also recommended changes to the requirements that accredited investors must meet, such as excluding assets held in retirement accounts in the calculation of investors' net worth and adjusting the net worth and income threshold to account for inflation since the rule was enacted in 1992. At the same meeting, the Investor Advisory Committee voted to approve, with two abstentions, a subcommittee recommendation regarding human capital management disclosure. The IEC recommendation asks that the Securities Exchange Commission add requirements for disclosure of four items. One, the number of people employed by the issuer broken down by whether those people are full-time, part-time, or contingent workers. Two, turnover or comparable workforce stability metrics. Three, the total cost of the issuer's workforce broken down into major components of compensation. And four, workforce demographic data sufficient to allow investors to understand the company's efforts to access and develop new sources of talent and to evaluate the effectiveness of these efforts. In commenting on the recommendation in her opening remarks at the meeting, SEC Commissioner Hester M. Peirce raised the following seven sets of questions about the recommendation. One, are investors the only audience of the disclosures being recommended? If not, which specific disclosures are tied to financial materiality, the touchstone for investor-oriented disclosures? Will other constituencies benefit from these disclosures at the cost of investors? Two, principle-based standards are designed to accommodate a varied issuer population. Would it even be possible for the commission to draft uniform, prescriptive human capital disclosure requirements that would elicit material information regardless of a company's size, industry, location, and any other distinct human capital challenges. Three, would the recommended disclosures risk giving investors false confidence 
in the accuracy, consistency, and comparability of human capital information. Four, why do we need a new rule just three years after the Commission's adoption of human capital disclosures and before the Financial Accounting Standard Board issues its final desegregation rule? If anything, additional is needed. Would guidance regarding the existing rule be better than a new rule? Five, do we risk requiring disclosures that only larger companies could afford, perhaps because they already make similar disclosures? How should the Commission scale these disclosures for smaller companies? What kind of human capital information is most costly for companies to track? Six, the draft recommendation expresses an interest in disclosures related to gender, race, slash, ethnicity, age, disability, and or other important categories. Are there constitutional or other legal concerns with requiring such information to be disclosed publicly? How would this information be financially material? And seven, how can the commission avoid drafting rules that would have the effect of micromanaging public companies' human capital decisions rather than simply eliciting disclosure? Number two, on September 20th, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission adopted amendments to the Investment Company Act's names rule, which help ensure that the labels on funds accurately portray how the capital in those funds is being invested. SEC Chair Gary Gensler said that as the fund industry has developed over the last two decades, gaps in the current names rule may undermine investor protection. He added that today's final rules will help ensure that a fund's portfolio aligns with the fund's name. Such truth in advertising promotes fund integrity on behalf of fund investors. The names rule currently requires registered investment companies with names that suggest a focus in a particular type of investment to adopt a policy to invest at least 80% of the value of their assets in those investments. Existing rule, which was adopted in 2001, is intended to prevent fund names from misrepresenting the fund's investments and risks. Under the new amendments, the rule will apply to any fund name with terms suggesting that the fund focuses on investments with particular characteristics. The SEC says the primary types of names that the amended rule is anticipated to cover include fund names with terms such as growth or value or certain terms that reference a thematic investment focus, including those indicating that the fund's investment decisions incorporate one or more ESG factors. Funds with an 80% investment policy will be required to define the terms used in their names, including the criteria they use to select the investments that the terms describe. The rule will require that any terms used in a fund's name that suggest an investment focus be consistent with the plain English meaning or established industry use. Funds also will be required to review their portfolio assets treatment under their 80% investment policy at least quarterly, but fund departs from this policy will generally have about 90 days to get back into compliance. Andrew Bahar, CEO of As You Sow, a nonprofit group that promotes environmental and social corporate responsibility through shareholder advocacy, hailed the adoption of the new amendments. He said, when investors put their hard-earned savings into an ESG or fossil-free fund, they expect to reduce their climate risk and not own big oil, coal, and deforestation. These new rules will help provide needed truth in advertising and make a statement that financial greenwashing with misleading or deceptive ESG labels is not acceptable. The final rule amendments will become effective 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. Fund groups with net assets of $1 billion or more will have 24 months to comply with the amendments, and fund groups with net assets of less than $1 billion will have 30 months to comply. 
And the number one most significant development in corporate governance and capital markets regulation during the period of September 5th to October 3rd occurred back on September 11th when the U.S. asset owner members of the Council of Institutional Investors voted to amend CII's membership-approved corporate governance policies to further promote the ability of share owners to make informed decisions on when to recall loan shares. As amended, Section 4.3b of CII's publicly available policies on corporate governance encourages companies, where practicable, to publicly release their proxy materials at least six days before the record date of the meeting. For some companies, this could mean either keeping the same proxy preparation schedule and moving the record date closer to the meeting date, or keeping the record date and accelerating the proxy preparation schedule. CI staff understands the latter is something some corporate secretaries have strong concerns about. But CI staff have also heard the investor perspective that share lending is going to continue. And in the absence of more proxy information, many shares are going to go unvoted, including on some very important votes. Thus, the new policy language is intended to signal investors' interest in working on this proxy information timing problem. And we hope to see incremental evolution toward more informed decisions on when to recall loaned shares. That completes my monthly U.S. Corporate Governance Capital Markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.